Good morning. Great to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC by the grace of God. And uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, this fall we've been uh, working our way through the book of Hebrews. And uh, we're just over halfway through, I suppose, um, looking at Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. So uh, Hebrews chapter 8, if you're following in one of the blue uh, church Bibles on the ground, you can find Hebrews 8 on page 1005. And let me invite you to stand with me as we listen to God's Word. Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each, other, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, please give us ears to hear what you are saying uh, to your people this morning. As we give our attention to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So this week, I went to see Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, anybody see Bohemian Rhapsody this week? Um, anybody expects to come into church and hear Bohemian Rhapsody or anything about Queen being that? <laughs> uh, okay, so Bohemian Rhapsody, if, if you're not familiar, is... Um, a movie, I think it just came out this week, about uh, sort of a documentary about the band Queen. And it tells the story particularly of Queen leading up to the legendary performance that they played at the Live Aid concert in London in 1985. And 
Uh, I'm a little bit young to have been like a Queen fan when they were at their uh, at their height, uh, at the height of their fame. And so it was really fascinating to kind of uh, watch this movie and kind of understand a little bit more fully just the story of, of how this band became such an epic and legendary band in, uh, in American culture. Well, I guess in not just American culture, right? They were British. Uh, and it was this deeply moving. I, I found myself like choking back tears <laughs> throughout much of the movie. And um, like I said, the story, at least as it's told in the film, is, is about the band as they develop and kind of go through the ups and downs, um, you know, the, the band fights, the almost breakups, um, leading up to this concert that they played at, um, at the Live Aid concert. And the, the Live Aid concert was uh, sort of this, this event on like an epic scale. They played a, simultaneously, uh, there were concerts in London and Philadelphia, um, and it was it was kind of this worldwide event. It was um, over a billion people supposedly watched this event on TV, uh, and it was all done in an effort to raise money for famine relief in in Africa at the time. And so, at least as the story is told in the in the movie, the the fundraising aspect of the event was not going well until Queen uh, took the stage and kind of stole the show and and just performed this, this epic you know, concert, and, uh, and it was incredible. It was incredible, the story was told so well, but the thing that was fascinating to me is that everybody that I've talked to who's seen the movie did the same thing I did, which was having seen the movie, I went back home and watched the actual concert performance on YouTube. It's only like 22 minutes long, it's grainy, uh, it's not super high quality as compared to the movie that you know Hollywood spent millions of dollars producing. And yet, the original, like as great as the movie was, nothing compares to the real thing. And everybody that I've talked to who's seen it uh, has kind of said the same thing. A friend of mine, in fact, uh, he's a British guy, he, he wrote this on Facebook this week. He said, I, I, I was 15 when Live Aid happened, and I remember watching it live on TV said it was a huge event, and I remember clearly just how much things changed when Queen took the stage. He said, I've probably watched Queen's Live Aid performance at least once a year over the past 30 years. I made my kids watch it. I made my kids watch it with me on Friday night. Um, he said the film was incredibly moving, but nothing can, place, nothing can replace the real thing. Isn't that fascinating that, that no matter how much energy is put into you know, the reproduction, nothing can actually match the real thing. And that, I think, is what Hebrews chapter 8 is telling us. Nothing can actually match the real thing. We've been looking at Hebrews uh, most of the fall. We're going to look at Hebrews all the way up to Christmas. And uh, we've seen how the author is writing to a group of Christians who had a background in Judaism, but they put their trust in Jesus. Um, you know, many of them probably were born before uh, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, and so they had this background in Judaism, but put their trust in Jesus, and now they're tempted to settle for something less. They're tempted to settle for something less than the real thing. And so in Hebrews 1 through 7, the author is like making this case over and over and over again. He's saying, Jesus is better. Um, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. If anybody ever asks you for the rest of your life, what is the point of the book of Hebrews, you'll be able to tell them, Jesus is better. Because I've said that about a million times in the last 
eight weeks or so, right? Uh, he's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than the priesthood. And I know every week I'm trying to unpack and say, this is why this matters. But sometimes I feel like we still walk out going, I just don't get priests. Like, so why don't, why does that matter exactly? But here in chapter eight, it's like the author has reached this crescendo and, um, and finally, he kind of, he reaches this point where he comes out and says what he's been building towards. And he's saying all of these things, the priests and everything else, they're just like a shadow or a map or a sign that points to a greater reality. And once you have that greater reality, you would be foolish to settle for anything other than the real thing. Have you ever had uh, that experience of settling for a substitute, longing for something, but having to settle for a substitute? I, I remember um, in junior high, uh, this is such a funny memory. <laughs> in junior high, flannel shirts, it was like the mid 90s and everybody had flannel shirts. And I just remember like for months talking to my mom, like mom, I have to have a flannel shirt. And my mom coming home one day, finally, I, like, talked her into getting me a flannel shirt. She brought home this, like, cheesy off-brand flannel shirt. I was just, like, so, so <laughs> This is never going to live up to my expectations. It would never satisfy. Have you ever had, a, uh, had an experience like that that you knew would not satisfy? All fall, as we've been looking at Hebrews, the question that I've been pressing you to ask is this. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? And the one thing that I can tell you for sure is this, that if you are ever going to be able to say yes to that question, you've got to experience the real Jesus, not a substitute. And if you experience the real Jesus, uh, you will never... You will never settle for anything less than the real thing. Two things I want you to see in this passage. The real person and then the real people, okay? The real person and the real people. So, uh, firstly, the real person. Look at verse 1. It says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Now, it's always a really helpful thing if you're reading the Bible. If it says this is the point, <laughs> to be like, oh, that's the point, okay? Um, this is what he, he's finally just coming out and telling us what he's getting at. This is the main point. And then he goes on and says, we have such a high priest. Now, he goes on to explain more about who that high priest is. But just listen to what he's saying. That's the point of everything he's been saying. We have him. We have him. You don't have to settle for something less because we have the real thing. Another way to put this is this. What Christianity is offering to us is a person. What Christianity is offering to us is a real person, not just another religion. Let me explain what I mean by that. Every person who has ever lived, every individual, every human culture, uh, we, we have this sense that things are not okay. <laughs> the world is not as it should be. And yet we, we long to be told that we are okay. We long to have, um, we long to kind of connect with ultimate reality, but we have this sense that there's a gulf between ourselves and the divine. And so religion is an attempt to bridge that divide. And so if you think about the different sorts of religions that the world offers, some religions offer moral teaching, and then some religions say, 
through moral efforts, through being good enough, you can bridge the, d- the divide across, um, you know, and, uh, and connect with the divine. Uh, other religions give us rituals and sacrifices and tell us that if we, through the practice of religion, through the practice of ritual, through the practice of sacrifice, through confession, uh, wh- whatever the rituals are, that we, will, um, that we will experience the divine, we will connect with ultimate reality. And then other religions tell us that it's really about the state of mind, and so through, I don't know, meditation or altered consciousness, you can connect with ultimate reality. But what Hebrews is saying is this, that with Christianity, you get something entirely different. With Christianity, what you get is not another religion. With Christianity, what you get is the real thing. You actually get a person. And so Hebrews is saying that Christianity is not about human beings trying to reach across the divine or the divide to connect with ultimate reality, but it's in fact the opposite. Christianity is about God coming towards us and reaching towards us across this divide. Christianity is not about humans striving towards God, it's about God moving towards us. And so Christianity is not just another religion. It's actually the end of religion. Dick Lucas uh, was a pastor for many, many years. He's uh, retired now, but a pastor in London, um, English, Anglican minister. And uh, he said this. He said, if you want to understand the book of Hebrews and what it's all about and why he keeps talking about priests and sacrifices and temples and prophets... If you want to understand the book of Hebrews, you've got to ask, imagine a question between a first century Christian and his Roman pagan or non-Christian neighbor. Okay, and so the, the Roman neighbor, who's not a believer, comes to his Christian neighbor and says, oh, you've got this new religion, that's really interesting. Uh, where's your temple? And the Christian says, we don't have a temple, Jesus is our temple. And the, the Roman says, no temple? Well, where, where do your priests you know, do their thing? And uh, the Christian says, we don't have priests. Jesus is our priest. And the Roman says, well, then who offers your sacrifices? And the Christian says, we don't have sacrifices. Jesus is our sacrifice. And uh, the Roman says, that's a really weird-sounding religion. It doesn't even sound like a religion at all. And the fact of the matter is that uh, Christians were first called atheists, in the, in the first and second century because their, uh, their, their practice looked so different than other religions. And so the point of the book of Hebrews is these Christians who have put their trust in Jesus and are now going, I don't know, uh, we miss our traditions, we miss our customs, we want to go back to something that feels safe, that feels familiar. They're tempted to settle for something less. Now, they do that in ways that would never occur to us to do. We would never do that in ways that would involve sacrifices or priests. But we are tempted to settle all the time, just in different ways. And if you saw uh, the movie Her that came out in 2013, um, strange movie, it was kind of set in the future, and it's about this man named Theodore, who uh, he's going through a divorce and um, his life is sort of unraveling, and he sees this ad for an operating system. And it, like, it's like Siri, basically. Her name is Samantha in the movie. But he buys this thing, and I think he puts it in his ear, 
and he develops a relationship with Samantha. Let's just hope that Siri never actually like evolves to this level. But he develops what, what it develops into a, a romantic relationship with an artificial intelligence operating system. And at first, it's great for him because Samantha like knows everything about him, and Samantha knows how to support him. And Samantha knows how to encourage him, and Samantha never contradicts him, um, and you know Samantha never demands anything of him. The only problem is that it's not real, right? It's an approximation of intimacy. It feels a lot like intimacy, and yet it's not the real thing. And like Theodore, we are often settling for an approximation when we allow uh, other things to take the place in our lives that only God can um, command or lay claim to. We are settling when we allow an approximation to take the place of the real things in our lives. We do this in all kinds of ways. We don't do this with priests and sacrifices, but we do this with relationships or with work. Um, you know, with, with relationships, we do this when we expect that you know, a spouse, a romantic interest, some of us do this with our kids, expecting that, that this other person um, could be enough and could fulfill us. And yet it never does, right? Because no, no person can bear the weight of our existence. And so we expect to find fulfillment in a relationship. Uh, and when we do that, we will be disappointed every time. We're settling when we ask uh, our work to kind of help us find meaning in life. Uh, work is a good thing. God created us for work. God created us to do good uh, work. Work is wonderful, but it cannot connect you to true meaning in life. And if you expect it to do that, then your work will actually become the thing that enslaves you. You will say, I can't stop working. I can't stop working. We settle in all kinds of ways for things that were only ever meant to be signs pointing us to something um, greater in life. C.S. Lewis uh, has this incredible quote that, that really gets at the heart of this. It's a little bit long, but I think this makes sense. You'll, you'll be able to track with me. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger because there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire while there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud, Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, listen to this. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind or a copy or an echo or a mirage. Okay, do you understand what he's saying? There, there's all kinds of experiences in life that were only meant to point to something greater, uh, 
to point across to the divine, to, to only be satisfied by God and by Him alone. And so we cannot despise them, but we cannot look to them to do for us more than they are capable of doing. Christianity isn't another religion. Christianity gives us a person, the real, the true, the authentic person. The person who comes to us from the other side of the divine, uh, the, the, the divide, who is actually divine. That's why Hebrews began by saying, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That's who Jesus is. He is God himself come to show us what God is like. And so what that means is that when, when, when Hebrews, when the Bible is saying, don't settle for something less, it's not like moralistically saying, don't do those things because they're bad. It's saying they will enslave you. They will make you less than fully human. God has come to make you fully alive. You have the real thing in Jesus. You have a real person. We have him. So don't settle for anything less. Okay, that's the first thing we see in this passage. Christianity doesn't just, um, uh, isn't another religion, but it gives us the real person. But the second thing this passage tells us is, um, because Jesus is the real person, he makes us into the real people. Does that make sense? He's the real person who makes us into the real people or the new people. In the second half of the chapter, in verse 7, all of a sudden he starts using this word covenant. And um, he quotes this, this long passage from Jeremiah 31. It's actually the longest uh, longest Old Testament quote in the book of Hebrews. And so when he's, when he's quoting this long passage, we have, to under, we have to kind of stop and say, why is he doing this and what exactly is going on here? Um, okay, have you ever wondered why the Old Testament is so long? <laughs> like, have you ever wondered why the Old Testament, um, like if it was just a sign, if it was just a shadow, if it was just pointing to something beyond itself, why did God go through the time and the energy and the effort to set up like such an elaborate system? Um, what is going on in the Old Testament? You know, there's some good stories, some good places to write songs from. You know, the Psalms, there's some really like some zingers in the Psalms I make for good bumper stickers. But what is the point, right? And it's led Christians from time to time to kind of have this view that the Old Testament is like God's first try. It was God's plan A, and when it didn't work, uh, God just had to send Jesus, and so Jesus is plan B. And it almost sounds like that's um, what he's saying here in verse 7. He says, for if that first covenant, uh, I know we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, but really, it really should be the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so when he's, when he's talking about um, here is the Old Testament, the, the, what we think of as the Old Testament. So for if that first covenant, the Old Testament, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So it almost sounds like he's saying it was a mistake. But then he goes on in verse 8. And in verse 8 he says, For he, meaning God, finds fault with them when he says... So the them is, is talking about the people who are the recipients of the Old Testament, the, the people of Israel. 
uh, the people of God in the Old Testament. And so what, what Hebrews is saying is the fault wasn't in God. It wasn't like God had this plan and it didn't work, so then he had to go with plan B and send Jesus. What he's saying is that uh, God finds fault with the people. God finds fault with the people. The people were the ones uh, who failed. The people were the problem. The people, just like us, are people who desperately need a rescue. But we settle for anything else. I mean, the first thing that happens in the Old Testament when they receive the Ten Commandments, Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, kind of the, the encapsulation of the Old Covenant, and he comes down the mountain, and the people have made a golden calf. And, you know, they've given up on God that quickly. And just like then, people who are desperate, desperately need rescue, we settle for something else. And so, because the people failed, they failed, and we continue to fail. God says, I'm going to create a new people. I'm going to enact a new way of relating to my people, a better way of relating to my people. Uh, I'm going to enact a way of relating to my people, not on the basis of priests and and sacrifices and rituals, but on the basis um, of covenants. And so if we're going to understand what in the world this is talking about, about who the the new people of God are, we've got to try to understand what the word covenant is all about, because um, we, we live in a culture that really does not have a concept for covenants. Uh, a covenant is a relationship that is both intimate and binding. And in the world that we live in, we don't think that intimate and like legally obligate, legal obligation go together. Does that make sense? Um, so we think of you know a legally binding uh, relationship, a contract. You know, that's something that is ironclad, but it's cold, and it's, it's, it's sterile, and it's, it's impersonal, and it's, it's very formal. And yet we also, I mean, we think about, um, I mean, we, we, we sort of live in a, in a culture that says, on the personal level, everything should be driving towards your individual happiness. And so uh, you should do whatever it is that makes you happy. And so if you're in a relationship and it isn't making you happy, you should get out of that relationship. Um, You know, if you're in a marriage and it's not working for you, there's only so much that you should put up with um, before you get out of it. But a covenant is an entirely different relationship altogether. A covenant is, is a relationship that is both binding and intimate. And so I think about, it, it, I think it's, we tend to think about this in terms of a romantic relationship. So you think about when you start dating somebody, you begin to date somebody because you like them and you like what they do for you. Right? When you start dating somebody, you say, like, I like the way this person looks. And I like the way that I feel when I'm around this person. And that's good and that's healthy and that's normal. Um, but, but, but it's also essentially selfish. Do you see that? That you, that you kind of enter a dating relationship, a romantic relationship, because of what it does for you. But if that relationship is going to mature, eventually you have to get to a point where you kind of you, you switch and you say, okay, I'm going to commit to you now, um, even when you're not meeting my needs. Uh, I'm going to be faithful. I mean, this is what you promise when you get married. I, I love doing weddings because... 
um, you know, when, when couples are say, taking their vows, um, you know, for richer, for poor, and sickness and in health, till death do us part, and they're like blubbering all over each other, and they go, I love you, but they're, what are you doing? You're saying, one day my life is going to get really bad, or your life is going to get really bad, and I promise to be faithful to you, even when you don't meet my needs, even when you don't make me happy, even when you're sick, even when you're annoying, even when you disagree with me, even when you don't look as beautiful as you do today, I promise to be faithful to you. That's, that's what a covenant looks like. And, um, and if, if a relationship is going to mature, at some point that switch has to take place. Where we say I'm committed to you even when you're at your worst, even when it's not fun, even when I don't get exactly what I want. Um, okay, so that's what a covenant relationship is. And a covenant relationship, because uh, of the way it functions, it's both intimate and binding. And, and the fact that it's, it's binding actually makes it more intimate. Um, think about it like this. When I was a college pastor, I used to tell college students all the time, you're not actually friends with somebody until you've survived your first argument with them. Because until you've gotten through something hard together, you're kind of just using each other. You like the same things, you do the same things, and you just agree to like use each other to do those things together. But when you have an argument with somebody and actually work it out and get through it, um, there's a there's a deeper level of you know of, of friendship, fillet fill, friendship love. Let's just say, uh, I don't know what the correct form of that word is in the Greek. Um, <laughs> forget I said that. <laughs> no, nobody knows what I'm talking about except for, never mind. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying, okay? You're not actually, it, it, it's because the binding nature of a covenant relationship that forces you to stick together when things are hard, that forces you to get through it, that actual intimacy grows, and love actually uh, increases and emerges as you walk through um, difficult times together. Uh, so that's what a covenant relationship is. We see it in marriage, I mean, at least in an ideal way. Um, maybe even a more helpful way to think about it is in terms of a parent-child relationship. Uh, because in a parent-child relationship, it's just obvious, like any parent knows this, you have a relationship with somebody where you've said, I love you before I ever saw you. Uh, I'm committed to you before I ever knew anything about you. And that is what God is saying about the way he's going to relate to his people in the new covenant. I'm in this not because of what I get out of it. That's the point of all of this. God is saying, I'm making a covenant with you. He says in verse 10, this is like a refrain throughout the entire Bible. It shows up in the earliest chapters. It, it shows up, I think, in Revelation 21 or 22. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what God is saying is, I'm committing to you for your sake. I'm committing to you even when I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm committing to make you better even when it costs me everything. And ultimately, that's what the cross is all about. Jesus, having lived a perfect life, goes to the cross. And on the cross, he remains faithful even when it's killing him. And as the passers-by mock him and as the soldiers cry out to him and say, if you really are the Son of God, why don't you save yourself? 
Jesus is silent, not because he couldn't save himself, but because he is remaining faithful to you. Because on the cross he is paying for your sin and giving you his perfect record of righteousness instead. He was faithful. And because he was faithful, we can experience intimacy with God. And so what that means is that we can have an intimate relationship with God on the basis of his promises instead of kind of just going through the motions and then going to church, trying to pray, reading the Bible. You can have real intimacy with God. So the question then is, is how do I know if I have that sort of a relationship with God? And uh, there, there are two things that um, kind of come out in this passage that I want you to see about what it looks like if you have a covenant relationship with God. So if you have a, a, a covenantal relationship with God um, that is based on God remaining faithful to you no matter what, let me just say, as opposed to a religious relationship with God, which is a transactional relationship with God, that says... God, I'm going to follow you as long as you do these things for me. If you have a a relationship with God based on a covenant that he keeps on your behalf, it will be characterized by two things according to this passage. The first thing is that it will be characterized by intimacy instead of formalism. Intimacy instead of formalism. Look at verse 11. It says, They shall not... Teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. What it's saying is there's a difference between knowing about God. God is great, God is powerful, God is omnipotent, God is everywhere, He's omnipresent. Um, There's a difference between knowing that there is a God who exists and knowing things about God and actually knowing God. In a a religious approach to God, a kind of transactional approach to a relationship with God, there is no intimacy. Uh, You might might read the Bible and you'll be inspired by something you hear. You might might go to church and hear something that's kind of thought-provoking and kind of gives you the warm fuzzies. But like, that's all there is. Um, You might wonder like, uh, am I doing this right? Am I uh, going to church? Uh, is, do I just keep doing this? Like, what am I supposed to do now? What happens next? But in a covenant, there's intimacy. It says, they will know me, not just know about me. They will know who I am. Uh, have you ever noticed that two people can experience the same, like, horrible events? And yet for one person, that event becomes the thing that drives them away from God. And for another person, it's the thing that drives them to God. I I, I heard somebody kind of talk about a a childhood experience this week in which one sibling kind of turned and rejected God and the other sibling was driven into a lifelong devotion to God. They both experienced the same thing. How can that same experience cause two people to react in such polar opposite ways? Well, the only, the only possible explanation can be that, that one person had a covenantal relationship with God. 
and the other had a transactional relationship with God. One person said, um, God, I will follow you, I will listen to you, I will obey, I will go to church, I will read your word, I'll do all of these things as long as you bless me. And the other person said it was horrible. And I look back on that saying, where in the world were you, God? And I don't know why God allowed that to happen, but I knew that God was there. And it was through that experience of deep suffering and pain that this person found a deeper commitment to who God is. Have you ever thought, you know, I'm, I'm coming to church, I'm trying to be a good person, my life doesn't always seem to be going that well. I look at my neighbors. Like, why, do, why is life so much easier for them than it is for me? What is God doing? You know, what I've experienced, I think the, one of the conclusions I've come to is just coming, I don't know, hopefully coming through, being in a very hard season for the last couple of months. The conclusion that I've come to is that God is just not in a hurry. Like, he is in no hurry to make the circumstances of life better or easier for his people. And he seems to be willing to take a very, very long time. He seems to be willing to spend exorbitant sums of money in many cases to help us understand how much we need him. And I know it, it, it could sound like a cliche. Um, the light shines the brightest in the darkness. You will never know that Jesus is all you need until he's all you really have. And when he's all you really have, then you will discover that he really is good. He really is good. He really is enough. intimacy instead of formalism. We will actually know God, not just know things about Him. We'll be eager to worship instead of just going through the motions. And I I have to say that I think, um, well, let me just say this quickly. I don't think we've done a great job as a church so far. I don't mean this even as a negative about our church. Just in the life of a new church, like we've, we've put a lot of energy into like gathering around worship and building community, and I don't think we have done enough yet to help us as people kind of grow in intimacy with God um, and, and, and know how do we uh, not just show up for church on Sunday morning, but how does uh, worship on Sunday morning affect Tuesday morning or that disagreement with kids on Thursday night? And so one of the things I'm excited about, um, I hope in the new year, is just some, some things that we want to try to help us grow in our discipleship, our intimacy with God. Experiments, I've learned to say, not, uh, not definitive changes that we're making. We're just going to experiment with some changes, okay? Because yes, worship is essential to the life of, of Christians, and yet it's not the, it's like the beginning of the, the week. It's not the, the entirety of our experience. When God brings us into covenant relationship with him, we experience intimacy with him, not just a formal relationship or just going through the motions. But uh, 
Secondly, lastly, um, when, when God brings us into a covenant relationship with him, that will be experienced by community instead of individualism. Uh, verse 10 says this. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, my people, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He doesn't say they shall be my individuals. He doesn't say they shall be my persons. He says they shall be my people, all of them, a community. Uh, I think that there are kind of two opposite temptations in the Christian life, and one is kind of what I just talked about, this this sort of corporate experience, but it can become formal uh, and formulaic and ritualistic. The other is to kind of have this, this view of Christianity that it's mostly about me and Jesus on my own. And so like on me on the top of a mountain or me in my prayer closet, that's where I'm at my holiest. But uh, the Bible says no, that, that God is building a new people, a new humanity, a new uh, a people for God's own possession. Because the triune God is a community, we can only experience him fully in community. And here's the thing, that sounds great in theory, and in practice, it's a really stinking hard. Um, there was a great illustration of this in Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, it kind of gets to the end of the story where Freddie Mercury has been offered this solo recording contract. And he goes off to Germany to record two CDs, and the rest of the band's really angry with him because he's going to make all this money without them. And he kind of gets to the end of his, his senses and comes back and is trying to convince the band to play the live concert with him. And, uh, and, and he says to the band, he says, when I went off to Munich, I hired a band, and I told them exactly what to do, and the problem is that that's what they did. They did, they did exactly what I told them to do. And what he realized in that moment was that he needed the other members of his band or his family pushing back against him, rewriting. It just isn't that good um, without the input of people willing to argue with him. That sounds great, doesn't it? But in theory, you know, in theory, but in community, uh, in the actual experience of community, it's really hard. Real community requires us to bend to the needs of others. If I say I love you, but I can never make time for you, then I don't really love you. If I say I love you, but I'm not willing to have an awkward conversation with you, then I don't really love you. Real community requires us to do hard things together. And the, the, the truth is that it takes time, and it's hard work, but it is so worth it. Because it's as we make time for each other, as we have those hard conversations, as we do the hard work of building community together, that we grow in intimacy with God and with each other. This past week, um, we finished uh, soccer season in our family, and I was coaching one of our boys' teams, and so we finished the, the season with this party, but we thought it'd be fun to do like a parent versus kids scrimmage, soccer scrimmage, to end the soccer season together. And um, it was awesome. And all of my kids wanted to play, including my daughter, who's four and a half. And uh, she was asking me for days, Dad, can I play in the soccer scrimmage? Can I play? Can I play? 
finally I'm like, okay, you can play. And so she gets on her little pink soccer cleats and she gets out there and she just like rumbles with everybody who's playing in the soccer scrimmage. And we went out to pizza afterwards and it was so cool to hear so many of the other parents go, your daughter is fierce. And I just thought, you know, it's a privilege to get to play with the team. And she knew it was a privilege, and so she went out there and worked hard. And that's what this passage is calling us to. It's a privilege to be a part of the covenant people of God. And so we should work hard for it. Uh, We don't earn it by working hard. But in order to experience all that God is offering for his people, we have to refuse to settle we have, to, we have to refuse to settle for something less. Don't settle for empty formalism. Don't sit, settle for a thin individualism. Don't set, settle for religion because you have the real thing. You have the real person. You have real community. So don't settle for anything less than Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words, and God, I feel every week like it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a chore just to even make sense of Hebrews and to understand what is being said here, but I pray that, that maybe somehow as we do the work of, of wrestling through these passages and trying to understand um, what the writer is saying and what it all means that we would come to a greater appreciation of who Jesus is. And that having developed a a taste for the real thing, you would help us to be people who don't settle for anything less. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.